Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to Jesus on Prophecy. Tonight, our topic is Jesus talking about the mystery of death. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we want to thank you for the gift of life. And Lord, you never intended that man should die, but sin has come into our world and brought death with it. And Lord, we want to understand it. We want to know what it means and what we want to know the deceptions that are going on in the world involving the understanding of death. And so Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit guides our hearts and minds and gives us wisdom. And we pray that you would show us what you would have us do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to look at yet another deception that is going on in the world today. And as we are going through Jesus on Prophecy, we are discovering that there's not one deception that's going on, but there's a multitude of them. There are layers of deception that are happening in our world today. And we've already looked at Revelation chapter 13, the first 10 verses and the first beast of Revelation 13 and we saw that that is in fact the Antichrist and we've also seen all of the clues from Daniel chapter 7 that Antichrist is none other than the Roman papacy and so we've got that part figured out but now we're going to start getting into that second beast of Revelation 13 and we're not going to figure out who that is yet tonight that'll come in another night but I do want you to notice that as John was seeing this vision he notices some very interesting things about this second beast and he says in Revelation 13 verse 13 and 14 he that's the second beast performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and he does what? He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. And so here we see this second beast is going to deceive the whole world by signs. And those signs, another way of saying that is simply miracles. There are miracles that are going on that seem to or appear to be coming from God, but they're not. They're coming from somewhere else. And the whole purpose behind these miracles is to deceive people. That's what we see there. Jesus said something very similar when He was giving the signs of His second coming in Matthew 24, verse 24, when He said, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. We also see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, that it says the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception. Over and over again, we see in the Bible this deception that is going on in the last days of earth's history, and it's being carried out through this working of miracles, through this working of signs 
and wonders. And then Revelation chapter 16 verse 13 adds something very interesting to that. It says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And then the very next verse says something very interesting. It says, For they are spirits of demons performing signs. Now again, we see this deception through this supernatural ability to perform signs or miracles. But I want you to notice that this time that it actually reveals who is really behind it all. It says that it's all coming from the spirits of demons. And if you go back and study your Bible, you discover that demons is another way of saying the angels that rebelled with Lucifer. They are referred to in the Bible as demons. And so this is where all of these miracles, these things that are happening in the last days, they have this appearance that it's coming from God, but it's really coming from demons who are performing these signs and wonders. And uh, I want you to notice there that they're coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. Now, we haven't discovered yet who the false prophet is. We're going to get to that when we get uh, to the United States in Bible prophecy. But we have talked about the beast, haven't we? We've talked about that first beast of Revelation 13. We saw that is Antichrist, and Antichrist is the Roman papacy. We're not talking about individual Catholics here, but we're talking about a corrupt, a broken system that is led by the papacy. And then we also have already talked about the dragon. And we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that the dragon is talking about Satan. It says the devil who is Satan. It talks about the serpent of old who is this dragon, right? But we also talked about how the dragon doesn't do anything out in the open. But Satan always works behind the scenes. He's always deceiving and he's always working through human instrumentalities. And we saw how it talks about in Revelation 12 verse 3 and 4 that the dragon tried to kill the male child who was going to rule the world with a rod of iron and, and who was caught up into heaven. And we know that that's Jesus. And we know that how did the dragon try to kill baby Jesus? Well, he didn't do it out in the open. He worked through human instrumentalities, right? He worked through Herod who was representative of Rome. And so here we see that the dragon primarily is talking about Satan, but it's also talking about Rome before it was Christian. And so we're talking about pagan Rome. And we see here that we have the dragon representing pagan Rome, we have the beast representing papal Rome, and then we have the Antichrist who we haven't talked about yet. But it's very interesting 
that the dragon is working through these instrumentalities. Let me give you another example. You go to Ezekiel 28, you go to Isaiah 14, and they're talking about two earthly kings, the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. But then you read through the passages there and you see that they're actually talking about Lucifer. They're talking about the devil. And so we see that the devil is the power behind these two kings. Right? And so it's talking about pagan Rome. But eventually there, I want you to notice too in Revelation chapter 13 verse 4, that it says that the whole world worshipped the dragon who gave his authority to the beast, and then the beast gives his authority and power to the false prophet. And so we see this spirit coming out of each of them successively. You start with pagan Rome, then you get to papal Rome, and then you get to this false prophet, which we're going to talk about later. But we see that the dragon is the one who is behind the whole thing. And the dragon in this sequence represents pagan Rome. And so he gives his authority and power. In fact, you can go through history and you can study it out and you can see that's exactly what happened. When Constantine, the last emperor of Rome, left Rome, he gave his crown and there's there's still pictures that are available today in the history books that show Constantine giving his crown to the pope. And so here we see that's exactly what Revelation 13:4 was talking about. He gave him his power, his throne and great authority. So history perfectly fulfills the prophecy there in Revelation 13. But I want you to notice that before Rome became Christian, that it was pagan. And the dragon is representing pagan Rome there. But notice that these spirits of demons are performing signs and they're coming out of the mouths of each one of those successively. And so if we are going to understand this deception that's going on in the last days that's coming from these demons who are performing miracles, then we've got to go all the way back to the beginning when this happens and we see that that's from pagan Rome, right? And when you uh, study this out in history, you see that uh, Rome was pagan before it was Christian and it actually began there in this prophecy where we see these uh, signs that are going to be performed. And so if we're going to understand it, we have got to go back to the root of paganism. Because that's where it all starts. And when we do, we discover that this root is these occult practices that are happening. Anything that is not Christian is pagan. And so you have occult practices, those are pagan. You have sorcery and witchcraft, that's pagan. You have the worship of false gods, that's pagan, right? You have trying to communicate with the dead. All of these things are pagan. But we don't call it paganism anymore. Today we have another word for all of that. And that word is spiritualism. 
We've all heard that term today, spiritualism, not so much talking about paganism, right? But they're the same thing. Paganism and occult practices are the belief that the dead communicate with the living. And you'll find that all throughout pagan practices and, and uh, occult practices. And you'll also, it's very interesting too, as you go back and you study Israel and you look at them when God brought them out of Egypt and as they were on their way to the promised land and then even when they went into the promised land, you see that the nations around them were all pagan. They were all practicing spiritualism. In fact, for sake of time, I'm not going to take you there, but let me just read to you a few verses from Scripture. Notice the first one says in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so here you have these surrounding communities that are having an influence on God's people. And they're bowing down and worshiping other gods and they're inviting God's people to be a part of this and they're actually going and being involved with it. Then there's another one I'll show you. In Psalm 106, verse 28, it says, They, that's Israel, joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Now we see the nations around them are trying to communicate with the dead. They're making sacrifices to the dead. And once again, God's people are getting themselves involved in that. But I want you to notice something that Paul says later on. You've got the Old Testament and all of those pagan spiritualism practices And I want you to notice what Paul says about those in the New Testament. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. He says, "...the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons." What's Paul saying here? He's simply saying all of those pagan practices, all those occult practices, all of this spiritualism that's going on in the world, they think they're worshiping a God. They think that they're communicating with the dead. But what they're really doing is communicating with demons. And Paul says, I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. So then we go to the book of Revelation. And we get to chapter 18 and verse 23, and it says, For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Now we get to the end of time. We know that these deceptions are going on, and we see that John is telling us that this sorcery, this spiritualism that's going on in the world is designed to deceive God's people. That's what we see happening in our world today. And it says, 
all of the nations, right? So this is not happening in one particular area, but this deception, uh, because of spiritualism in the world, it's bringing this deception on everybody. Now, we need to talk about that then, right? And so I want to start by asking you a question. And that is, what Old Testament command did God give to His people regarding pagan practices or spiritualism or attempting to communicate with the dead? Is there anything that God has to say about that? And again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read a few verses to you. You can write these down if you'd like and go back and look at them later. But we're going to go to the book of Leviticus. And I want you to notice that in chapter 19, verse 31, God says this, "...give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God." Then you go another chapter later, Leviticus chapter 20, and you go to verse 6, and it says this, And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Then you go just a few verses later, still in Leviticus chapter 20, now verse 27, and it says this, A man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. And so here we see that this is a very serious thing. God says, cut them off, kill them, get them out of the land, right? And so if you were a medium and you were trying to call up and talk to the dead and they discovered you, they were supposed to stone you. And then we see here also that it says, especially those who have familiar spirits. Now, I want to ask you a question. What's a familiar spirit? And the definition is really very simple. It's a spirit that you're familiar with, right? And so what these people were doing is they were trying to talk to the dead. They were trying to talk to someone that they were familiar with. So they're probably trying to talk to mom and dad who had died or grandma, grandpa. And these are spirits that they are familiar with. And so this is what God is saying. They're attempting to communicate with people that are dead that they are familiar with people that they knew in their life. And so they're trying to bring them back up from the dead and to communicate with them. And God says, if you do it, you kill them. You cut them off. And why? I'll tell you why. Because Paul says, if you're trying to communicate with the dead, you're not going to be able to. Who you're really communicating then is with demons who are performing signs. They're pretending to be someone that you are familiar with. I want you to notice what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 through 12. The Bible says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. 
that's sacrificing your children to your God, right? He goes on to say, or one who practices witchcraft or soothsaying or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures up spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So here we see God telling Moses that the reason that God is giving them the land, the promised land, is because all of these nations are practicing sorcery and witchcraft and spiritualism, paganism. All of these occult practices. And that's why God's giving you the land and that's why He's driving them out. So don't you do those things, right? And then you can go to 1 Chronicles chapter 10 and you can read about King Saul who was told by God to get rid of all the mediums in the land. And he starts to do that, but then he doesn't finish it. And later on, he turns his back on God and God's not answering him. And so he himself says, are there any mediums in the land? And his men tell him, yeah, there's a witch in Endor. And so he goes to her to call Samuel, who was God's prophet, up from the dead. And I'm not going to take the time to go into that whole story, but you can see that as a result of that, Saul loses the kingdom and he even loses his life. And so this is a very serious issue that God is talking about here. Now, I would just say this to you. We can't just look back and say, yeah, there was this spiritualism that was happening in the Old Testament because it also happened in the New Testament. And we can see that spiritualism is even happening today. In fact, we would say today it is more prevalent than it has ever been before. Let me give you an example of this. You can go back through history and you can see when the whole spiritualism what we would call modern-day spiritualism began in the United States. You can go back and you can discover that it was in 1848. And it happened in New York City. This is the first recorded one that we have in the United States. And it was called the Rochester Knockings. You ever heard of that? The Rochester Knockings. There was these two sisters... Uh, the Fox sisters who were living in this house where somebody had died in it and that supposedly this person had come back from the dead and was basically terrorizing them in their house. And so this began in 1848 and that's where we have the beginning of what we call spiritualism here in America. But there's something very interesting about this. I want you to notice something. There was a judge who wrote a letter about what was happening in his time. And he wrote this letter in late 1852, early 1853. So this is just four years after the Rochester knockings, right? Notice what he says. He says, Scarcely more than four years have elapsed since the Rochester knockings were first known among us. Then mediums could be counted by units, but now by the thousands. Then believers could be numbered by hundreds, now by tens of thousands. 
It is believed by the best informed that the whole number in the United States must be several hundred thousand. And in this city, New York, there must be from 20 to 25,000. I'm going to pause there for a moment. What's this judge saying? He's saying just four years ago we heard about this. And now, four years later, it's everywhere. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say... There are 10 or 12 newspapers and periodicals devoted to the cause, and the spiritual library embraces more than a hundred different publications, some of which have already maintained a circulation of more than 10,000 copies. Besides the undistinguished multitude, there are many men of high standing and talent among them, doctors, lawyers, clergymen in great number, a Protestant bishop, the learned and reverent president of a college, judges of our our high court, members of Congress, foreign ambassadors, and ex-members of the United States Senate. What's this guy saying? He's saying four years ago was the first time we ever heard of it, and now it's everywhere, and it's not just involving average people. This is involving people in high places. And they are reporting all of these spiritual sightings and, and spiritual things that are happening in the state there, right? And so here he's saying, look, this has exploded in just four years' time. Now think about this for a minute. That was in 1853, right? But what about today? Today it's everywhere, right? You have these shows like The Ghost Whisperer and The Medium. These are highly acclaimed TV series featuring attractive women who supposedly can speak to the dead, right? And it's not all fiction. There are TV shows that have been out like The Lisa William Project and Messages from Carla May. And these are hosted by professional mediums who claim to be able to speak to those beyond the grave. And then you have today all of these near-death experiences that are going on, right? And they have resulted in all of these books and all of these movies that have come out about these people who have supposedly died and went to heaven and then came back and they have all these things to say about it, right? And so spiritualism is a very huge issue in our day today in fact one of the most popular mediums today is new york times best-selling author sylvia brown she is a regular guest on many talk shows and talks about the things that she has communicated with people from the dead there's also another famous medium by the name of allison dubois And she is the inspiration behind that TV series, The Medium. And Dubois and Brown both acknowledge that they have personal spiritual guides that are with them every single day of their lives. In fact, I want you to notice what Sylvia Brown once said in a TV program that she did. She said, I was eight years old, alone in my bed one night, when a glow of light cut through the darkness and the slightly vague form of a tall, slender woman with long black hair stepped towards me from the core of the light. And she said, don't be afraid. I have come from God. 
Sylvia Brown says, I ran screaming to my grandmother, Ada, who calmly explained that I had just received a visit from my spirit guide. She's been my closest companion and advisor ever since. So here's my question for you. Where is all of this leading? I mean, why is there this explosion of supposed communication with the spirit world? Well, I would just say to you, it's all a deception. And it's all leading us somewhere, and we need to understand it. Now, let me be very clear. I would say that those people who have had those near-death experiences, I would say that those people who claim that they have these ghosts haunting their house, I would say to you that I absolutely believe that they have had a very real experience. But I would also say that it's not from God. Because what's the Bible telling us? It's the spirit of demons who are bringing about these things that are leading the world to a certain place. And let's think about it for a minute. I mean, everyone here has probably lost someone in their life whom they love. And if you could have the opportunity to speak to them, you would want to, wouldn't you? I mean, if we're honest about it, we would want to hear what they have to say if we can truly speak with the dead. But let's ask the question, can the dead really speak to us? I mean, if they can, we would be foolish to not talk to them because they would have some things that they could tell us to help us along our journey. But what does the Bible have to say about the dead? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. That's going to be page 1236. Now, I just want to give you the background of this story. In this story, you have Jesus somewhere with His disciples off ministering to people. And you have Jesus' friend whose name is Lazarus. And Lazarus lives in Bethany. And Lazarus has two sisters. That's John 11, page 1236. And Lazarus has two sisters by the name of Martha and Mary. And Lazarus gets sick. And so the two sisters send someone to go find Jesus wherever he is and tell him that Lazarus is sick. And the idea is that Jesus will hear that his friend is sick and he'll come heal him, right? But then we read here, I'm not going to read the whole story to you, but we read in John 11 that it says Jesus waited three more days after he was told that Lazarus was sick. And then let's pick up the story in verse 11. It says that he said a bunch of things, and then he says this to the people. He says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. I want you to notice what's going on here. Lazarus is sick. Jesus waits three days. And then he says to the disciples, let's go. I'm going to go wake him up. And what do the disciples say? They say, well, Lord, he's sick. He's resting. If you let him rest, he'll get better. 
But then it clearly says that he was speaking about death. Because I want you to notice what it says in the next verse. Verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now here's the thing, friends. There's only two possibilities here. Either Jesus is confused and he doesn't know whether Lazarus is sleeping or he's dead, or what Jesus is telling us here is that death is a sleep-like state and he's going to go wake Lazarus up from the dead. And if you read the whole story, you discover that that's exactly what happens. Lazarus is dead, and so he goes and wakes him up from the dead. So clearly, Jesus is showing us here that death is a sleep-like state. But we don't want to just take that one verse and build our doctrine. Let's look at Psalm 13, verse 3. It says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I do what? Lest I sleep the sleep of death. And so here we see from this verse that death is a sleep-like state. And we won't go through them all, but I'll tell you this, that death is referred to as sleep in the Bible more than 50 times. And so we certainly have a weight of evidence. But let me ask you a question. Why do you think that the Bible refers to death as sleep? Well, let's think about that for a minute. And let me ask you a question. What's the best night of sleep that you've ever had? I'll tell you what mine is. My best night of sleep that I ever had was I laid down, my head hit the pillow, and the next thing I woke up when the alarm was going off in the morning. I didn't remember anything, right? I didn't have any dreams. I didn't have to get up and go to the bathroom. There was no conscious thought at all. It was just, I went to sleep and then I woke up. And that's what the Bible is showing us that death is. Which leads us to a very important question. Is there any consciousness in death? Now, this may come to a surprise to some of you, Because the popular teaching today is that when you die, you either go straight to heaven or straight to hell. That's the popular teaching, right? And so what the Bible shows us, though, is that death is simply a sleep that we sleep until the resurrection. And the reason that it uses sleep to describe to us what death is like is because there is no consciousness in death and I want you to think about this for a minute let's just take the popular teaching that when you die you go straight to heaven or straight to hell and let's talk about Lazarus for a minute because Jesus raised him from the dead he had been dead four days right Jesus waited that extra three days to make sure that Lazarus was good and dead Right? Because the popular belief of that day was that the soul, the spirit, could still return to the body up to three days. And so Jesus waited till the fourth day. And so Lazarus was good and dead. But think about this Lazarus was Jesus' friend. So do you think that he was probably righteous or unrighteous? He was probably righteous. So imagine if you were Lazarus. And you had been in heaven for four days. And Jesus brought you back and brought you back into this life. What would you say to him? 
I'll tell you what I would say. Lord, I thought you loved me. I was in heaven. Would you bring me back to this dark, digi, sin-filled world for, right? Or let's look at the opposite. Let's say that Lazarus was in hell. What do you think he would say then? Oh, thank you, Lord, right, for bringing me back from that place of torment. But nowhere in the Bible does it tell us anything that Lazarus said. Why? Because the last thing Lazarus remembered is he was sick and he went to bed to get some rest. And then he woke up with these grave wrappings on him and he's like, what's going on here, right? There was no conscious thought anywhere in between there. Notice what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead go straight to heaven or hell. Is that what the Bible says? No, it says, but the dead know how much? Nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. There's no conscious thought. And so what happens? Their love, their hatred, their envy, it's gone, right? Because there's no conscious thought in death. Notice what Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4 says. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, He returns to the earth, and in that very day, what happens? His thoughts perish. What's this saying? It's saying that you breathe your last breath and you die, and your body returns to the ground, and there's no more thought. There's no more conscious living, you're in this peaceful, restful sleep. Now let me ask you a question. If the popular theory is true and you go straight to heaven when you die, do you think you'd be praising God? I would be. I'll be like, thank you, Lord, for giving me eternal life, right? But notice what Psalm 115 verse 17 says. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go to heaven. Is that what it says? No, nor any who go down into silence. And so the Bible is very clear that when we die, we are in this sleep-like state. There's no conscious thought. The Bible says the dead know nothing. Their very thoughts perish. They do not praise the Lord, but they go down into silence. And that brings up another question then. Well, what about those who die? Can they go back to their house and haunt it like the Rochester knockings assumed? I want you to notice what Job says. Job chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Job says, As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. And so the Bible is very consistent in this. That the dead know nothing, the dead do not return to their home. Now, do you think that something really was happening in that home of the Fox sisters in Rochester, New York in 1848? Absolutely. I believe that was a real genuine experience that they were having. But what was it? Demons performing signs, right? Deceiving people into thinking that it was the dead come back to life. And so there is no 
one that is going to return back to their home after they die. If there's something happening in that house, it could very well be a genuine experience, but it's not the dead coming back and communicated with the living. And then someone might say, well, what about the soul? Because you see, in this popular deception that's going on, in this popular view today, what do they say? They say that, well, they died, but that was just the body. The real them, the soul, goes to heaven or hell, right? That's the popular teaching. And so we have to ask the question, what about the soul? And I want to look at this. The only way we're going to determine what a soul is, is we've got to go back to creation. So go back to the first book of the Bible. Genesis, the second chapter, that's going to be page 2 in your seminar Bible. And I want you to notice what God says about His creation of man. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now that's what my New King James Version says. But there are some translations that are actually more accurate than that that say, and man became a living soul. Does anyone have that translation? Do you know what it is? What's the name of the translation? That's the King James, okay? And then there are some others that do that as well. So what I want you to notice here is that we have a mathematical formula. Body plus breath equals a living soul. So it's not that you and I have a soul, it's that we are a living soul. And what does it take to have a living soul? You have to have body plus breath, right? That's the mathematical formula. So I want you to notice what Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 7 says in talking about death. It says, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, that's what happens when you die, And the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So this is talking about the opposite of creation, right? It's talking about the Spirit leaving you and then the body returns to the dust of the ground. The problem that people have is they look at this word Spirit and they say, see, that's the soul. As if the soul can somehow exist outside of the body. But remember what it takes to be a soul. Body plus breath. So what happens if you have death? What happens if you take a living person and you take away the breath? What do you have? A corpse, right? That's what you have. Now, I want you to notice what Psalm 104, verse 29 and 30 says. You hide your face, that's God, They, that's us, are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. This psalm is talking about life 
talking about creation and it's talking about death. But there's something very interesting about that verse. Remember the last one we read where it said, your spirit leaves them? The word that is used in the original, that was the Hebrew language for Genesis and for Psalms, right? Go back to the original text and you'll see the word there for spirit in in Psalm 104 is the word ruach. Now, I want you to notice what it says. I'm going to read Psalm 104, verse 29 and 30 again. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away the breath, ruach, they die and return to the dust. Right? In that case, the word ruach is translated breath. But then in the same verse, it says, you send forth your spirit, but it's the same word. Ruach, and they are created. So here we see that in the Bible, you can interchange breath and spirit, and it's the same thing. So what's it saying there in that previous verse that we looked at? When it's talking about the spirit, it's talking about the breath. Let me just go back to it quickly. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the breath shall return unto God who gave it. That's what it's saying there. It's not talking about us as if we have a soul that can exist outside of the body. You are a living soul. And so body plus breath equals living soul. All right, now let's go and let's ask another question. Can a soul die? And what does the Bible say? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall what? Die. And so, here's the thing. A soul is what? A soul is a living person. So, let's put that in there. Behold, all living persons are mine. The living person who is a father and the living person who is a son, they are mine. But what happens? The person that sins shall die. Is that consistent with Bible teaching? Yeah, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so the soul or the person who sins is going to die. Let's look at another verse. Matthew 10.28 And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What's Jesus saying? He's saying don't worry about somebody persecuting you and killing you. Because they can take your life, but then you sleep in the grave, and when I come back, I'm going to raise you from the dead. Rather, you should worry about Me. Because I can kill both the body and the soul. That's the second death that the Bible talks about. That's the death that there's no coming back from. Right? And so God says, don't worry about somebody killing you. They can kill your body, but they can't take away your salvation. You should worry about the one who can take away your salvation. That's all that Jesus is simply saying there. I want you to think about the Garden of Eden for a minute. Adam and Eve sinned. And what happened? God kicked them out of the garden, right? Why? I want you to notice what it says in Genesis 3.22. 
And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. You see, man had sinned against God and God did not want man to live forever in that sinful state. And so He kicked them out of the garden. Adam and Eve would have lived forever if they would have just ate from the tree of life. It would have perpetually gave them life. But now they've sinned against God and now God has to take away the tree of life because He doesn't want them to live in that sinful condition. God's going to fix it all. God's going to give us eternal life. But He didn't want us to have eternal life as sinners. Right? And so He sent them out of the garden. These are very clear statements that the Bible is showing us about life and death. Notice this from Job 4.17. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his Maker? Man is mortal, right? Now I want you to think about that popular teaching of today that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. What's that really saying? That's really saying, well, the real you didn't die. That was just the body. The real you goes on, right? That's saying you have immortality. That's saying you didn't really die, right? But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that man is mortal, right? And then I want to show you another one. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. That's going to be page 1294. I want you to notice something that Paul says to us. Romans 2, page 1294. Notice what Paul says to the church in Rome, what he's saying to us, starting in verse 5. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. He says, But in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and what? Immortality. So let me ask you a question. Why would Paul tell us that we need to seek for immortality if we inherently have it in ourselves? If we can't die, why do we have to seek after not dying? That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Friends, we are able to reason these things out. We're able to think them through logically. Uh, Why would we have to seek after immortality if we naturally had it? So the question then is, who is immortal? Let me show you this. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's going to be page 1365. I want you to notice what Paul is saying to Timothy, what he is saying to us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, "...that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing." That's until the second coming, right? Keep the commandments of God until the second coming of Christ. He goes on then to say in verse 15, which He will manifest in His own time, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who, what's the next word? 
alone has immortality. Here we see that the Bible tells us that God is the only one that is immortal. You and I do not have immortality. We are mortal beings. Now let's just look at it here on the screen. Only God is immortal. Mortal means susceptible to death, right? We are mortal. We are susceptible to death. But immortal means you can't die. It means you're imperishable. The Bible never uses the terms immortal soul or immortality of the soul. Nowhere in Scripture. Notice what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would what? Not Not die. Not perish. We're mortal. We are subject to perishing. And so God is going to give us everlasting life. But when do we receive it? I want you to notice what the Bible says. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. That's going to be page 1325. 1 Corinthians 15. And we've already looked at verses 51 to 54, but I want to read them again. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51, Paul says to us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What's he saying there? He's saying we're not all going to die. There's going to be one group of people at the coming of Christ who are in Christ who are alive. He says, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when do you and I receive immortality? At the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? When He raises the righteous dead and we who are alive and remain are transformed. This corruptible body, this sin-filled body has to be changed to an incorruptible body. And that's when this mortal puts on immortality. And so the Bible is very consistent, isn't it, in what it's teaching. We get immortality at the resurrection. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And then what happens? The dead in Christ rise. That's when we put on immortality. That's when we see the coming of the Lord. So, we just need to think these things through, right? So, how did Jesus understand death? Well, we already saw what He said in John chapter 11. Death and sleep are the same thing. But let me show you a couple more. Turn with me to Matthew 22. This is what Jesus has to say about death. Matthew 22, that's going to be page 1139. Notice what Jesus says. Well, I want to go back before Jesus talks. I want to go back to verse 23. Notice what the Bible says. Matthew 22, verse 23. 
It says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Him and asked Him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. And I'm going to stop there for a moment. I want you to think about this for a minute. What's going on here? The Bible tells us that the Sadducees... They're a group of the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Did you see that? It's very clear, isn't it? That's why they're sad, you see. They don't believe in the resurrection. But notice they come to Jesus to ask Him a question about the resurrection. So clearly they're just trying to trip Him up and they're trying to prove once and for all that there is no resurrection, right? That's their purpose in asking this question. Now notice what Jesus says to them. This is verse 29 of Matthew 22. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. I'm going to stop there. Notice what Jesus says. You guys don't believe in the resurrection. You don't understand the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Because God is able to wake people up from the dead. Notice what He goes on to say. He says, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. And I'm going to stop there again. Notice what Jesus is saying. You don't understand the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. But there is a resurrection. And now I want you to notice the very next verse. Jesus says, but concerning the resurrection. And I'm going to stop right there. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, whatever I'm about to tell you must prove that there is a resurrection. Because they don't believe in a resurrection. They're trying to trip Him up. They're asking Him this question. And He says, but concerning the resurrection. So in other words, whatever I'm about to tell you has to prove that there is a resurrection. So notice what He says. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, this is how you know there has to be a resurrection. Because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And where are they? They're in the grave. They're sleeping the sleep of death. There's no conscious thought. So how can He be their God unless they are able to recognize Him as God? And the only way they can do that is if He resurrects them. Powerful. Look at this. Here is the proof of the resurrection. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. After all, how can God be the God of a person who can't acknowledge Him? And so there has to be a resurrection for them 
to see him as their God. And because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried, therefore there must be a resurrection in order for God to be their God because he's not the God of the dead. You see it? It's powerful, isn't it? And it totally makes sense what Jesus is saying there. But if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all went to heaven when they died, then Jesus' proof of the resurrection doesn't prove anything. If that popular teaching is true, that when you die, you go straight to heaven, His proof of the resurrection doesn't prove anything. Because that means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in heaven. So the only way that it can be true that there is a resurrection is if He raises them from the dead. And when's He going to do it? At the last day. Right? At the second coming of Christ. The other thing is, if they all went straight to heaven, there's no need for a resurrection. Why does God have to come all the way back to the earth to give them a new body if they go straight to heaven? He can just give them a new body there. Right? And think about this for a minute. You see, we don't think these things through logically. If you are a soul and the body dies and you go straight to heaven, you don't have a body, how do you see? How do you hear? You can't, right? It just doesn't make sense. We just haven't thought it through. The Bible is very clear that there is a resurrection. Now let me show you another one. Turn with me to John chapter 5. Page 1226 of that seminar Bible. I want you to notice something else that Jesus says here. John chapter 5, look with me at verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in heaven will hear my voice. Is that what it says? No, it says all who are in the grave will hear my voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Very clearly here, Jesus says there's going to be two resurrections, right? And when do we get immortality? When do we get life? When He comes His second time, right? Let's look at another one. Go just another chapter, John chapter 6, and notice what Jesus says in verse 39. He says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Verse 40, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up. When? At the last day. Now look at verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, the Bible is very consistent. You sleep in the grave until the second coming of Christ and then He will raise you from the dead and He will take you to heaven. Jesus continually pointed to His second coming as the time when we will put on immortality. Remember what John 14 verse 1 through 4 said? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm not going to bring you straight to heaven when you die. What does He say? I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you unto Myself that where I am, there you may be also. And so Jesus is clearly pointing to what happens to us. We sleep in the grave until the second coming. So... 
how did the apostles understand death? Let me show you a few verses there. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It's going to be page 1254. It's going to take me a little while to read through this all, but I want you to get this. I want you to notice what happens. Acts chapter 2, Jesus has resurrected and gone back to heaven, and now we have the church, right? And Peter is talking to the church. And notice what he says starting in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now I want you to notice that that word him is capitalized, or should be in your Bible. That's indicating that it's talking about Jesus. David is not talking about himself. And notice what David says. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So who's the Holy One that he's talking about? He's clearly talking about Jesus, right? But just to make sure we don't miss it, notice what he says. Verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter says this, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and in his tomb with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So what's this saying? Peter says, look, David wasn't speaking about himself. David died. David's tomb is with us, and he's still in the tomb today. So did the apostles understand what happens to you when you die? Absolutely. They clearly understood that David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Christ not seeing corruption and God raising him from the dead. Well, let's look at another one. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. That's going to be page 1323. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, you'll remember that in 1 Corinthians 15, we already looked at verses 51 through 54. So I'm not going to take you there again. I'm going to take you to another section. I want you to look with me, 1 Corinthians 15, at verse 16 through 19. And notice what the Bible says. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he's saying to us, "...for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen." And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, that's those who have died, in Christ have what? Perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. What's Paul saying? He's saying our only hope is in the resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then those who have already gone in the grave are gone. They're done. There's no coming back, right? There's no eternal life. 
The only hope we have is the resurrection. And that's why the Bible talks about the blessed hope of the resurrection, right? Because that's when Jesus is going to give us immortality. Now, I'm not going to take you there, but I'm just going to point out a couple more verses to you. You can write them down if you want. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Hebrews 11, verse 13, and then verse 39 and 40. And if you go to Hebrews 11, that's what we call the faith chapter or the hall of faith, right? It's talking about all of those who died in faith. And it says they all died not receiving the promise. The promise of what? Eternal life, right? But then it goes on to say that they will not be made perfect without us. What's that saying? It's saying that all of those in the Old Testament who died looking forward to the coming of Christ, they are all still sleeping in the grave and they're going to get eternal life the same time we do. We're all going at the same time. Those who are dead in Christ are going to rise. Those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up with them in the air. And we are all going to be with the Lord in that way, right? Let me give you another passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you go to verses 6 through 8. And Paul is talking about his impending death. And he says that he is going to receive the crown of life. But then he clearly points out that he's not receiving it ahead of everyone else. He says, not only to me, but also to all of those who have loved God's appearing. What's Paul saying? He says, I'm going to go to the grave. I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. And then I'm going to be raised up. I'm going to receive the crown of life. And not just me, but everyone who has waited for God's coming. The Bible is very consistent on this. So how did Jesus' followers understand death? Remember we talked about the story of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. Well, Jesus comes, He waits three days, He comes back, and then He meets up with Martha. He says to Martha, don't you know that your brother will rise again? And notice what Martha says in John eleven twenty four. Martha said to Him, I know that He, that's my brother Lazarus, will rise again. When? In the resurrection. And when's the resurrection? At the last day. You see, they clearly understood Jesus' teaching that we all sleep in the grave until the second coming. So where did this idea of the immortal soul come from? That's a great question, isn't it? Well, we've already learned that spiritualism teaches that the soul is immortal. But before that, pagan Greek philosophy taught that the soul was immortal. But even long before that, in the Garden of Eden, the first lie to humanity was spoken. You will not surely die. You see, friends, the Bible is very clear that when we die, we go down into the grave. The dead go down into silence. The dead know nothing. 
Their thoughts perish. The dead do not praise the Lord. In the day that they die, their thoughts perish. Right? The Bible is very consistent. I want you to notice something that a man by the name of Amos Phelps said in a sermon that he gave called, Is Man by Nature Immortal? Notice what he says. This doctrine can be traced through the muddy channels of a corrupt Christianity, a perverted Judaism, a pagan philosophy, a superstitious idolatry to the great instigator of mischief in the Garden of Eden. The Protestants borrowed it from the Catholics, the Catholics from the Pharisees, the Pharisees from the pagans, and the pagans from the old serpent who first preached the doctrine amid the lowly bowels of paradise to an audience all too willing to hear and heed the new and fascinating ideology or theology. You shall not surely die. Where does it come from? It comes from spiritualism. That's where the whole idea of the immortal soul and when you die, you go straight to heaven. It doesn't come from the Bible. I want you to notice something else that Amos Phelps said in that sermon. I'm just going to read it to you here. He says, If you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth of the resurrection and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. Wow, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? He's saying that's not a Christian teaching. That's not coming from the Bible. That's this deception that is going on in the world today. Notice what Clark Pennock, a professor of theology at McMaster Divinity School in Canada, says. He says anthropological dualism. That's the idea that you have a soul and a body that are two separate entities and the soul can live on without the body. He says anthropological dualism has done such serious harm in weakening our blessed hope of Christ's appearing and distorting our understanding of the world to come. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? All right, I want you to notice what John Stott says. He's the founder and president of the London Institute of Christianity. He says, It cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal. For the immortality and therefore the indestructibility of the soul is a Greek and not a biblical concept. So some people ask, well... What about the thief on the cross? Right? Because in Luke 23, verse 43, it says that Jesus said to him, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so people take that one verse and they build all of their theology around it and they say, see, Jesus is telling the thief we're going to heaven today. But I want you to notice something very important. The book of Luke was written in Greek. And the Greek language has no punctuation. There's no periods. There's no commas. There's no apostrophes. There's no question marks. They don't use punctuation in the Greek language. So when the Bible was translated into English, they put it the comma in the best place that they thought it belonged. 
But where you place the comma makes a whole lot of difference. Let me give you an example of that. A woman without her man is nothing. Now you ladies here, you might not like that, huh? But let's just add another comma in there. A woman without her man is nothing. That makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? So what we need to do is we need to put the comma in the right place. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, why do I think that it has to be that way? I think we can prove that from the Bible, but let me just tell you why I think it has to be that way. Because Jesus was hanging on the cross and He said to the thief, I'm telling you today, when it appears like I don't have the power to even save myself, let alone anyone else, I'm telling you today, you are going to be with me in paradise. Now, why does it have to be that way? I want you to notice the question. Did Jesus go to paradise that day? That's the question that we need to answer. Because if it's true that Jesus said we're going today, then does the Bible have anything to say about it? I want you to think about after Jesus Christ died. He rose from the dead. And that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And she was standing there and Jesus was behind her. And He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She turned around to look, but she thought it was the gardener. And she says to Him, Sir, if you know where His body is, tell me and I'll go get it. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. And then she recognized Him And she ran to Him. And notice what John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her. He said, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to My Father, but go to My brethren and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and Your Father and to My God and Your God. If Jesus hung on the cross on Friday slept in the grave on Saturday, rose from the dead Sunday morning, and then says to her, I haven't been to paradise yet. Is it possible that Jesus went to paradise on Friday? Absolutely not. The Bible is very clear. He did not go yet when Mary met Him on Sunday morning. John made it very clear in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He said, He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Bible is very consistent. And so we are looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. And what's this all about then? Why is there this mass deception going on? Right? Because if the devil can get you to believe that you go straight to heaven when you die or you go straight to hell when you die and you don't have a correct understanding of death, he can deceive you in just about any way 
that he wants to. I want to close tonight by telling you a story of a pastor who knew exactly what happens to you when he dies. He saw the truth from Scripture and he had taught it through all of his ministry. But he had a 13-year-old son who had leukemia. And he kept praying for his son and praying for him and praying for him. But his son died. And he was losing his faith. And one day he was sitting in a room by himself and just praying to God and he heard his son's voice behind him. And he turned around and he saw his son standing there. And his son said to him, Daddy, you don't need to worry about me. I'm in heaven with the angels and all of this thing. And this man began to have a real struggle in his heart because he understood the truth about death and he understood that the dead know nothing so how could it be that his son was there talking to him and he realized what was going on and he rebuked the devil and he said get out of here and the aberration was gone you see friends if you don't know the truth about death the devil can bring all kinds of lies into the thing imagine in these last days the apostles coming to you and saying you know uh, when I said this this is what I really meant and you can see how there are going to be millions of people around the world who are deceived by that and are going to just believe just about anything that they hear. Because if you believe that the dead can communicate with you, you are open to all kinds of falsehood. And so what do we need to do? We need to be ready. We need to understand the truth from God's Word and so that we are not caught up in the deceptions of these last days. Remember, how does it work? You take a little lie... Mix it in with truth over thousands of years and pretty soon it's being taught as truth. But it's a lie. Because you see, in the last days, what is popular isn't always right. And what is right isn't always popular. And so the question that I have for you is, do you understand these truths from the Word of God? There are so many truths that we've gone through and there are more verses that you can look at. Yes, there are some obscure verses that seem to be saying something else. But we don't take our theology and build it around one verse. We have to look at the weight of evidence and we have to put it all together. And then, and only then, can we be certain that we have the correct interpretation. Is it the desire of your heart to know the truth to live the truth, follow the truth, and not be deceived by the devil in these last days. If it is, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of life. And Lord, we thank you for the truth about death. And as we look at the Word of God, we see that there's this mass false teaching, this error that has crept into the Christian church. It got in there a long time ago, but now it's being taught as truth. And Lord, now that we know the truth, we are so grateful. It's so much better than imagining that our loved ones are in heaven looking down at us at all the stupid mistakes that we make. 
and they're just cringing. That couldn't possibly be heaven for them. That is error. And Lord, we understand now that the dead are sleeping in the grave, a comfortable rest, and when they wake up, the very next thing they're going to see is Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. Lord, we can be so grateful for that truth. We just thank You for it. We pray that You'd help us to share this truth with everyone that we know. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.